and welcome to TWR's third roundtable discussion. We are so excited to be able to share this with you. Our episode today is on a more serious note than previous topics. In recent weeks, France has created a bill that prevents women from wearing their hijab in certain public areas and prevents everyone under the age of 18 from wearing their hijab in public. France has also instituted bans over religious practice and the accessibility of things that are important to Muslim culture, such as halal meat. That brings me to today's topic of discussion, the rise of Islamophobia in today's world. To bring credibility and an element of personal knowledge in a topic that has been severely mischaracterized in the past, we have four Muslim youth who have come together to discuss their faith and the mechanisms of how it's coming under attack. Before I introduce our speakers, I'd like to go through the outline of the RTD. We're going to start off with an introduction and move into our main discussion, which has four big parts. Firstly, the personal experience of the speakers, and this is to contextualize how important this issue is to youth and people around the world. Next, we're going to jump into the massive rise of Islamophobia post 9-11 and the various events that led to that. Next, we're going to jump into a discussion surrounding France and Quebec's recent hijab bill and why this is a major problem. And finally, we go into the misconceptions and media and the panelists will discuss some of the things out there about Islam that aren't necessarily true and address the differences between culture and religion. So all of our speakers are well aware of the speaking times and speaking order they've been given. So we're going to jump right into it with an introduction. Starting off with Alasni Kayser, who is the founder and CEO of TWR. Alasni, would you like to start off by introducing what Islam means to you and why you're at this discussion today? Awesome. Thanks, Vishu. So my name is Alasni. I've already been part of the uh, RTD, the first episode. In terms of what the faith means to me personally, uh, faith is a way for me to reconnect with my, with my creator. And um, faith has meant generosity, uh, spirituality, and just allowing me to live in a way that I believe allows me to be on a moral high ground. So that essentially is what I think faith means to me personally. Thank you so much, Lasni. Next up, we're going to go to Cheyenne, who is a business and economics senior columnist here at The Written Revolutions. Uh, yeah, so I would say like in terms of Islam, I I'm definitely not the most practicing Muslim out there. I would say I'm more of a non-practicing Muslim. But for me, Islam really means that's been the foundation for most of my moral compass and a bit of the spirituality and answering some of life's bigger questions about what's the meaning of life and where we go after we're dead. Thank you so much. Next up, we're going to go to Zara, who is the creative director here at The Written Revolutions. Zara, can you talk about how what faith means to you? Hi, so faith for me is a way of living, is the way I choose to promote peace and be with um, the one who created me, God. And it gives me answers to the questions that I want answers to, like where we go after here or what's the best way to live life and how do we live in a peaceful environment. In today's RTD, I hope to like clear all these misconceptions that Islamophobes have. That's great. Thank you so much. And last but not least, we have Mohammed, who is a MENA senior columnist here at The Written Revolutions. Yeah, thank you, Hupeshu. I'm Mohammed. Um, to me, like, Islam and more so faith, I guess, is like, it's just letting go and knowing that I don't have control over everything in my life and that I know that everything is going to turn out well because I, you know, I believe in a higher power that, that wants what's best for me. So I can just believe, I can just let go and have kind of faith that everything's going to turn out all right. And of course, there's also, you know, the other spiritual aspects, but that's more so like the biggest part for me. Perfect. Thank you so much. 
So now we're going to jump into the discussion, uh, starting off with our section on personal experience. So we're going to establish you know, what the speakers have gone through in terms of Islamophobia, just so the audience can get a better understanding of how real world people are being affected by this legislation. So I'm going to start off by addressing this question to Cheyenne. Um, how has Islamophobia affected you? Well, um, so when I was younger, about grade seven, I was, I had the unfortunate experience of being bullied because I was a Muslim. This was around the first time Donald Trump was elected, the only time so far. But um, yeah, that was a quite a low point in my relationship with Islam because I was disenfranchised and I felt hurt a lot of the time. And as well, just the random airport security screenings and just general Islamophobia within culture and all of that. Yeah, um, I would agree with that. I think that a lot of us can probably relate to our experiences traveling um, post 9-11 as one of the most um, you know, blatant forms of disc discrimination and alienation, really. Um, I think for me personally, there would be two main accounts that I can recall. It's not nearly as bad for me as it is um, for, you know, for many others who are currently living in Europe or in, in America specifically, where they've had their hijab taken off, where they've been beaten up, where they've been wrongly jailed just because they're Muslim. But I think that one of the earliest um, memories that I've had is I, I never wore the scarf until I was in grade nine, but I, I really solidified and made my decision um, until when I moved to grade 10. So prior to that, I traveled to the US and I did have a headscarf on. And I was at CVS and this woman comes up to me and she sees that my aunt has gone um, to another aisle. So I was alone in this other section. She comes up to me and she's like, oh, honey, you don't have to wear that thing here. You know, you're free. And I and I just said to her, I was like, um, what part of this makes you think I'm oppressed? Um, like, what's the difference between me wearing a headscarf and Mother Mary? wearing a headscarf, um, you know, like just because we call it the hijab and they call it modesty or just like a, as the sign of submission to God. I don't understand what the difference is and why Muslims are being all continuously mischaracterized. So I think that would be one of my experience. Like it's not as bad, it's not violent, but microaggressions like that compound and eventually do, um, you know, cement themselves as, as stereotypes that can be damaging and harmful to the image of Islam and, and to minorities. I think uh, that many of my experiences um, take, took place in school and I started wearing the hijab when I was really little. I was in grade three when I started and um, in many sects of Islam, we believe that it is mandatory to wear the hijab. And so I wasn't forced to, but my dad really um, was a religious, is still a religious person. So he wanted me to, and I did. And ever since grade three, I felt like I was different some way. In the schools that I've been to, I was part of minority. And wearing the hijab made me lower my self-esteem and the confidence that I had within myself before wearing the hijab. So I feel like we need to educate people more that it's okay, you can accept everyone around you because a lot of these instances take place in school where children should be accepted and not being and not be felt like they're excluded from any activity that takes place. Yeah, I completely agree with Zara that like a lot of like Islamophobia takes place in schools and it's like deep rooted in kids when they, like when they're kids, right? For me, like I remember like in elementary school, you know, kids would like 
go running down the hallway yelling Allahu Akbar, right? Obviously, like as a kid, like I I didn't appreciate that, but like I didn't understand like the weight of that. I think more so recently, like I've dealt with Islamophobia in like I'm a swimmer and I have a swim bag that has my name embossed on it, I guess. Uh, because a lot of people have the same bag, right? So when I take the train, you know, a lot of the time people usually reeking of alcohol uh, would come up to me, you know, yelling at me, uh, you know, go back to your country, all that stuff. And that was never fun. And it was like a very common occurrence, which was kind of weird to me. I, I never like expected it to happen that often, especially like I, I've had this bag since I was like six years old or something. And my mom gave it to me as a gift, right? So like, it was so weird to have something that I was given as a gift used, you know, against me, I guess. But yeah, I think that like what with what Zara said and what you guys said, I think that education, educating other people and like actively changing their perception is the only way that we can really like combat this. Yeah, it's a really great point, Alazi. And I'm really glad all of you came out here to talk about this because it's one main way we can start educating people. So firstly, I'm so sorry all of you had to experience that. And I really hope we can make steps towards progress in the minds of some bigots through discussions like this. So this brings me to the start of our main discussion where we kind of talk about the multiple instances that led to the rise of Islamophobia, um, specifically after 9-11. So we're going to start off by addressing this question to Alazni. Alazni, what instances contributed to the rise of Islamophobia around the world? Um, that's a great question, but I do think that we have to make it clear to the audience that Islamophobia existed before 9-11. So 9-11 itself wasn't something that contributed to the start um, of Islamophobia, but it did, the actions that were taken post 9-11 contributed to the rise of Islamophobia at the magnitude that we're seeing it today. So, I mean, post 9-11, the war on terror is, was a disaster. So um, I think that like, oftentimes people people put these things into perspective in terms of numbers, but I don't think I'm going to do that because 9-11 uh, was a terrible tragedy, the worst in, in U.S. history, in recent history, and um, any any person dead, any person, any innocent civilian life that is lost is a, is a tragedy. But I do think that you know, the, what the government did, what the Bush administration did post 9-11 contributed to the rise of xenophobia and Islamophobia around the world because they targeted um, these regions in the world, such as Afghanistan, such as the Middle East, such as Iraq. And as a result of that war, millions of people died. They, they gave their lives to something that they never actually did in the first place. And they considered this to be quote unquote collateral damage, but that's a living nightmare and a living reality for the people living there. And these incorrect allegations, um, for example, with Iraq, as though that, that they were holding, you know, they were possessing uh, weapons of mass destruction, all of that just kind of compounded over the years to these proxy wars that continued to, um, you know, result in refugees, that continued to result in millions of people dying every year. And yet the hypocrisy that we see from these nations is that they will fail to house those refugees that they created in the first place. Um, you know, just because I've said this before in the past, but just because the individuals who are bombing innocent civilians, um, they're in like air conditioned oval offices, um, or, you know, they're wearing ties and they speak English does not mean that they're any less of terrorists, they're still killing innocent people, even if their intention might be something else. And um, 
one of the one of the ways this is materialized, I think, in the U.S. specifically, is the Guantanamo Bay. And I know that Zara will talk about the hijab ban later. But with Guantanamo Bay, according to Human Rights Watch, um, none of the original 775 detainees who have been held in Guantanamo Bay after 9/11 have ever seen a judge. And these people have not been allowed to access lawyers. There has been, um, you know, there has been torture cases of torture, wa waterboarding. Um, um, starvation, etc. And, you know, the government hasn't properly even apologized that these people weren't able to seek the justice that they required just because of their faith. So that characterization and that generalization of Muslims as being violent, as being terrorists, as, as the sole cause of all terror around the world is really, really damaging, um, especially given that I'm, I will quote a report by TRT World, um, a French NGO actually and conducted this research that over 80% of the victims of all terrorist attacks in the world are actually Muslims themselves. So if we were to really look at the statistics and the logistics of this entire, of everything, of terrorism and everything that has taken place 9-11, you know, the victims have been Muslims themselves. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to add, you know, like how Alazni was talking about um, you know, uh, the Bush administration and their war on terror, how this actually resulted in an increase of extremism in the Middle East, especially, you know, imagine like you're a little kid and you, you grow up and you like, you're just, you, all you can see of America, for instance, in the West is that, you know, they're bombing you, you've lost numerous family members, right? You want, your people are gonna become vengeful because of that. And also, you know, making like this war on terror put, these countries in, you know, economic and sociopolitical environments where extremism can occur and a lot of people will become helpless and they'll turn to, you know, these extremist groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. So this war on terror really ended up resulting in more terrorism. Yeah, and in addition to that, I think while 9-11 definitely acted as a catalyst within the rise of Islamophobia, it's been sustained on reoccurring different terrorist attacks within the West especially within France, where we've been seeing this clash between French secularism and their ideas that they enshrine within the French Republic, and then what Islam enshrines and how there's this clash over there, especially with the Charlie Hebdo shootings, where in the West, it was seen like, you're just trying to silence these journalists, how dare you? But to the Islamic community, what Charlie Hebdo was doing was quite hateful because they were depicting the prophet Muhammad and the image form, which is not something good towards the Islamic community. So you have this clash between Western values and Islamic values that have also played into the rise of Islamophobia within the West. Just one thing that I'd like to add with that when you talked about um, Charlie Hebdo was that, you know, how Charlie Hebdo, like he made uh, cartoon caricatures of the Prophet, which was considered to be very disrespectful to the Muslim community. And then recently, after the Meghan Markle interview with Oprah, the magazine itself, they made another uh, cartoon that was that was with the Queen, the Queen's knee on uh, Meghan Markle's neck. And, and it was essentially a an allusion to the George Floyd um, death in, in that took place last year. So that essentially kind of uh, 
uh, propelled this reaction from, um, you know, the majority of the people within Europe and also specifically from the royal family saying that this was really disrespectful and everyone agreed mostly. They were saying that, yeah, this is disrespectful. So it is also ironic and, and uh, hypocritical when, when this thing happens with any, any individual from the West and that is considered to be disrespectful. But when it happens to someone that a Muslim, you know, communities consider revere as a, as a great individual, and that's us silencing um, real journalism. I completely agree with you guys. And also like these wars that intentionally take place in Muslim countries are the reason why Islamophobia has become so common and so popular and has been ingrained into people's brain that because wars are taking place in these Muslim countries, it is a fault of Muslims because they are terrorists. When in fact, there are other countries as well from the West who are taking part in these wars, even though like they're coming into another country intervening, um, they're not called terrorists. Rather, it is Muslims who are called terrorists because that is a Muslim majority country. I feel like people need to take that into consideration. Actually, most of the time, it's not Muslims living in those countries that want to fight. It's they're just forced to live in those in that situation. And it's people coming from these other countries intervening that are creating this ideology that Muslims are bad. Yeah, and it, I think it's really important you brought up that idea of labeling a lot of the people in Muslim countries as terrorists, because I think that had like catastrophic effects in the West, right? And that's what I wanted to ask in my follow-up question. How has Islamophobia affected the cultural landscape of nations around the world? So in terms of things like immigration, xenophobia, and general cultural interactions, um, how is how is labels such as calling Muslims terrorists, how has that affected that landscape? I'll take this to Alasni again. Awesome. I think that with regards to, you know, the cultural landscape, especially with immigration, that has, we've seen the effects in the last four years with Trump's administration, and thankfully he's gone. But the the Muslim ban, I think that was something that was very uh, damaging, especially to Muslims around the world, because we were alienated as being people who will only incite violence. And majority of the attacks, terrorist attacks that take place in the US, that the shootings that take place are actually done by, they're not done by Muslims, they're done by far right, uh, white extremists. So I think that, that that's something that people just fail to take into consideration because there's so much fear mongering in the West against Muslims. Um, and then with, with immigration specifically, I think also with refugee crisis in, in Europe, after Germany took in several refugees, people had this uh, fear that, you know, refugees coming in will change the this the system of that nation or it will it, they will create more terrorist attacks in the nation which is absolutely horrendous of an idea to execute because these countries are the ones who fund nations that that cause terrorism. These are the nations who conduct deals with countries like Saudi Arabia to, to really incite violence in, in many nations within the Middle East. And when they create these refugees as a result of proxy wars, then they fail to take them in when, when that has been a result of their efforts. So I think that's definitely something that, that people should definitely look into and understand. Um, but I think that 
also if we were to look at the Muslim ban, people don't really understand that at the end of the day, it is all politics. And although the US banned several, several Muslim nations, they did not ban countries like Saudi Arabia, which arguably by majority of the Muslims considered to be the really epicenter of radicalism and the false notion that they continue to perpetuate about Islam. It really starts from Saudi Arabia. They're the ones who are feeding that. So I think that it is a political game as well as something that's discriminatory and xenophobic. Yeah, I completely agree with Alasmi in that, you know, a lot of the extremism and a lot of the misconceptions that come about Islam come from larger, more powerful, like Muslim majority nations, especially Saudi Arabia. And I think I'll talk about this more later in the part about misconceptions about Islam, but like, especially in Saudi Arabia, because they perpetuate these like more so extremist values. And a lot of the time people will just, you know, they'll, they'll see Saudi Arabia as the, the beacon of Islam. And, you know, I, I think it's a really complicated relationship for a lot of Muslims uh, with Saudi Arabia because, you know, most of us, we don't agree with like their political views or anything that the government is doing or the kingdom is doing. But at the same time, we literally have to pray to them. We have to go to Mecca once in our life, at least. Um, to fulfill our religious, religious responsibilities, right? So it's like, it's really complicated for a lot of Muslims, right? Because I do not like Saudi Arabia, if you can't tell, uh, because of a lot of the stuff that they do, their government, and the, just the way that they that they use religion in a, in a way to do really horrible things. And a lot of the time, that's all people see. You know how many times people have asked me like, oh, oh you, you guys, you cut off people's hands, right? when they steal like that's like their their view of islam just like violence and um intolerance i suppose yeah i think uh religious intolerance definitely is a huge problem and that kind of brings me to our next big topic um so we started off creating this rtd just because of recent events that um in france so i wanted to start discussing that and how religious intolerance is rampant there uh, the P France has justified the bill as being a part of their secularism initiative. So, and, and that's been a heavy debate in France right now, whether um, the ban on religious symbols is really a form of secularism or if it's inhibiting people's right to practice their own religion. So I wanted to ask this next question to Zara. Um, do you think France's pursuit of secularism, particularly in their introduction of their hijab bill, is justified and or equal? In many of these sects within Islam, it is mandatory to wear the hijab. And so when you're taking away that from someone, you're taking something that is important to them. You know, you're taking away a part of their religion and they can't practice that. So to be banning the hijab is not justified at all. And in fact, when you're separating something like this from a state, you're actually increasing um, Islamophobia within that country because you're saying that it's okay to, you know, marginalize these people. It's it's just not justified in, in any case. Yeah, I definitely agree with what Zara said. And I think that if we were to look at, if we look at the legislation itself, then um, they, they've, they've mentioned two things. They've mentioned that Muslim women are oppressed, which is why they need um, to ban the hijab. And secondly, it is not part of their secular or democratic values. And I'm going to, I will talk about both of these points, starting with first the oppression. So 
if they say that Muslim women are oppressed and that we are forced to wear the hijab, which is not the case. Obviously, there are some cases in every single community where, unfortunately, women are forced to dress in a particular way or, um, you know, make choices based on not their own what they want. Right. And this happens in every community. It happens in every culture, every faith. But majority of the Muslims, especially in the West, um, who choose to wear the hijab, do so on their own accord. And both Zara and I wear the hijab and, you know, we both decided to wear the hijab. I decided to wear it in grade 10. She decided to wear it earlier, but we both wore it before the age of 18. If the age of consent in France is the is at the age of 15, where that can actually, you know, any sort of, let's say, um, interaction at that age could cause more catastrophic results or, or impact the child psychologically, mentally, physically. Um, but at the same time, just putting something on your head like a scarf will not really be damaging. I think that people have to make that distinction that is this really about, you know, the idea that women don't know what they want before the age of 18, when clearly the age of consent is 15, when um, you can drink at an earlier age in some countries where you can drive, like, for example, in Canada, you can drive when you're 16. So that's one distinction that people have to make. And then secondly, it's this idea that hijab is not something that is um, exclusive to Muslims. There are people from other faiths who wear the hijab or what we call the hijab, they might call it just a headscarf. So the nuns wear a headscarf because it's a sign of modesty. Um, Jain women wear a headscarf, you know, Hindu women wear headscarf. They especially wear the headscarf when they're going into temples. Christian women wear headscarves when they go into the church. And most notably, I, I think um, Jewish or Orthodox women also wear the headscarf. So wearing a headscarf is a sign of modesty. And it, for me particularly, um, hijab means liberation and it means empowerment. Just because my idea of empowerment does not fit yours does not mean that I'm not empowered. And um, the second thing would be the, the democracy argument, the secular argument that both Quebec and France have, you know, um, based this idea on. But secularism is not just removing all religious symbols and not allowing anyone to practice their faith. It is allowing everyone to do so equally. Because at the end of the day, all this progress that we've made to live in democratic societies is to have those freedom of expression, freedom of faith, freedom to, you know, be ourselves unequivocally. And the fact that they're removing that on this basis is, is ridiculous. We always end up putting countries in the West on a pedestal for their for their democracy, for their human rights. But in fact, with cases like France, they are the real oppressors because they're not giving that choice to women. And essentially, they're the ones who are controlling how women dress at the end of the day. I just wanted to touch on the point of secularism. And this is kind of more of a broad thought, I guess. But like I, I was reading, I think I, I heard it on a podcast. The reason that you know Western countries are pushing towards secularism is because, you know, for Europe, the, their dark ages were the times when the church ruled the land, right? The, the, like, so many issues happened in Europe because of the Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformation and, and mostly stuff to do with religion, right? And Christianity especially. Um, but for, for us Muslims, our best days were the, the Islamic Golden Age. When the Muslims were powerful, we were people who followed religion, all of our leaders would follow our religion, um, like even like the Ottoman Empire too. And a lot of the time, you know, like they, like they teach you this in like Islamic school, which I think is really funny, but um, the Ottoman Empire, they were really, they were really powerful up until, you know, they moved away from following Islamic law and stuff. And 
I, I think that's really interesting because, um, you know, there's no push for secularism in um, in the East, especially in the Middle East, right? Because they're, they're mostly Muslim countries and they're mostly ruled by Islamic law. And the countries that are kind of pushing for secularism and like are, are straying away from the Islamic rule, they're more so viewed as not very good. <laughs> Yeah, so sort of switching gears here, but going back to like the French secularism bill and what they've been passing in regards to the hijab ban and all of that. If we looked at the context in which it was passed, it was after the beheading of a teacher who did show those Charlie Hebdo cartoons. And it's in the guise of helping clear out radical elements from the French Muslim community. However, I believe that this doesn't do that. It does it quite poorly, if anything, and it, or it causes a further disenfranchisement of French Muslims who are already some of France's most vulnerable populations where they tend to be in a lower socioeconomic status, where funnily enough, there are TV shows in the West like Jack Ryan, the one on Amazon, where they show that there are these French Muslim men who go and they get university degrees from some of the best universities in Europe, and they're still unable to get jobs because they're still seen outside of French society. So in regards to what the bill is aiming to do, which is combating radicalism, is that it needs to have better solutions where that would be the promotion of more moderate views within Islam and helping these more marginalized communities find places to integrate within French society. Yeah, great point, thank you so much. Um, and that brings me to my second question. So all of you have expressed concern over the bill that France has passed, and a lot of people have also done the same thing. One of the major concerns that was raised by critics of the bill is that it seems to be very rooted in a colonial mindset and ethnocentrism. So could you guys speak to that opinion and whether or not that's justified? Ultimately speaking, regardless of the, the history, if France does, with all the revolutions that have taken place, with all the changes and the progress that has taken place, if a country like France that claims to be you know, democratic cannot really uphold those democratic values for all its citizens, for all people, then it's not really a democratic nation at the end. I don't think people realize like how big of an effect that French colonialism has even to this day. Because like in France, I, I'm not sure like what the, the actual French term is, but like basically like their ghettos, like on the outskirts of Paris and uh, in a lot of places in France, they're filled with like descendants of people who were colonized by the French. And that's why like you, you might not like people don't really realize that like France has like a really big Muslim population because a lot of these people come from northern Africa and they're descendants of people who were colonized. So, you know, a lot of like the time you'll think of France of like Paris and most of the people in Paris are like are Muslim and they're mostly of European descent but there's a very large population in France that's not like that and they're uh, African and they're Muslim. Yeah, and then like talking about France's colonial past we see that it hasn't had the best relationship with Islam when it's come back in the past especially within post-World War II within the independence movements in throughout all of Africa and the developing world, where we saw that in Algeria, especially, where when they wanted independence, they were brought in into a tighter sphere of control by the French. And it's this subjugation that I believe plays into this mindset where the French do believe that they should be able to control the religion. And even with how Catholicism is in France due to its historical roots where after 
some wars, the church in France is subordinate to the government. So they think they can also extend this to other religions such as Islam. And that's what they're trying to do, but it's not effective in how they do it because they're, it's not like how within Christianity where they're able to appoint bishops, priests, that's the French state's prerogative to do that after the Treaty of Anjou, I believe. Don't, not too sure on that. But what they're trying to do instead is they're just trying to root out our religion that and trying to reform it in a way that they see fit without consulting the stakeholders and looking like if they want a more moderate version of Islam, they have to be willing to put it forward within their own society. They mean That means they have to help this establish the seminaries to go train these future imams rather than relying on them coming from Qatar, Morocco, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Turkey. So they, if they want to be able to help govern Islam, they must be willing to put in the work as well by training the clergy and making sure that more moderate voices that are more in line within the French principles of laissez which is that secularism point, are promoted within Islam in France. I just wanted to say, like, I kind of disagree with that point a little bit, because I don't think that I think that we need to sort of separate, um, you know, religion and, and the state. And although that is essentially what secularism is, if we are allowing French government to kind of control the way that Islam is presented to people within um, within France, um, I agree with the part about like moderate voices that we need to filter out the extremism that comes from countries like Saudi Arabia and then comes from countries like Iran and other countries. But I do think that at the end of the day, it isn't really France's position to really change um, a religion that is followed by 1.3 billion people around the world because, you know, they are a government. It's, it's their political responsibility. They don't have that theological or religious responsibility to. But uh, giving people the equal right to practice their faith openly um, sets a good precedent and allows people from other faiths to feel comfortable in that nation, which in turn reduces um, radicalization. Thank you, Alazni. And you bring up a really great point about um, how, you know, it's not really France's place to be correcting parts of a religion. And that kind of leads into my next follow-up question. So as I mentioned earlier about ethnocentrism, a lot of Western countries that were uh, had a colonial past have a sense of kind of like a savior complex almost to be um, assisting nations around the world. And I think that's another reason why the war on terror was born. Um, it is the role of the Western countries to be kind of interfering in the affairs of other nations around the world. So I wanted to ask regarding terrorism, because that was brought up a few times, what exactly are countries doing wrong currently and what can they be improving to deal with the issue of terrorism better than they have been now? I think that with the terrorism, especially with the war on terror that you brought up, people, the West, there's two main, I think, groups. So one, the victim countries who are harboring terrorists um, or where activity has you know, been shown that they have you know, terrorist activity going on. And the second um, group would be the Western nations who are trying to intervene. So from the perspective of the Western nations, they have treated terrorism as a military problem, which is why the Bush administration, you know, they, they increased funding in the military and the defense and um, deployed troops in countries like Afghanistan and Iraq. But terrorism has never been a you know military problem it has always been a political problem terrorists they use military tactics to achieve a political goal to govern a country right 
but their ultimate goal is that that is is politically motivated it's not militarily motivated so one of the things that nations need to do is to shift focus from this um this like military mentality and move into actual long-term change that involves socio-political infrastructure. So allowing countries that have, you know, harbored terrorists in the past to look at why that is. So one of the reasons can be, for example, that there aren't enough facilities for people, that education is not available, that radicalization and, you know, joining terror terrorist um, groups is an easy way out for people who are not financially you know, independent or stable because the government is corrupt. So having that sociopolitical focus can really, really if, uh, change the long-term timeline of how this might look and how we can actually effectively um, stop and deter terrorism once and for all. Uh, I would like to agree with Alasni in that we need to stress education and the socioeconomic um, changes as well. And I think that most of the countries are not accepting people um, from diverse cultures and backgrounds and whatever religion they're from, including Islam, um, because Islam does have many sects and many beliefs. And the main focus that these Western countries are doing is that they're saying that Saudi Arabia and ISIS are like the true face of Islam, when in reality, it's not. Um, it's far from that, you know, many sects in Islam, they promote peace which majority of the Muslims Muslims do. But we need to focus on like educating people that so what Saudi Arabia has been doing and what ISIS is actually all about so that children don't become part of these groups or like, or start supporting things that they don't truly know about. So we really need to stress education and how Islam is portrayed in many of the countries. Yeah, sort of on the role of education and like people, I think we need to be able to I, separate political Islam from social Islam and cultural Islam, where the culture of Islam and the people who practice it are some of the most amazing people in the world. They're open-minded and you can have a great time if you go to the Middle East, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, the safer places, which aren't in a war, but you'll have a good time. You'll be able to really get into the culture. Whereas if you look you need to be able to separate it from politicalism and bring up the example because I've been reading Barack Obama's memoir, A Promised Land. If you look at the ways how a lot of states through back channels, they're actually supporting a lot of more Middle Eastern states and Muslim majority states, how they secretly support more or they have silent endorsals of different terrorist groups. How, remember Osama bin Laden, he wasn't killed in Afghanistan. He was killed in Pakistan where in his book, Obama, he said, Pakistan is one of the largest recipient, recipients of American military aid and foreign aid. However, they still had this harboring for Al-Qaeda within their own provinces because that helped them destabilize Afghanistan, which they were very scared of, that if they became a stable country, they would ally with India. So if we're able to separate political Islam and the way political entities, especially governments, are using Islam to further their own political needs, to from the culture of Islam and the people who practice it, then we can live in a more peaceful world. Yeah, I completely agree with Cheyenne. And also I just wanted to touch on like how a lot of um, extremism and radicalization occurs, um, you know, when people are hopeless. And that's what uh, ISIS recruiters and recruiters from terrorist organizations 
they rely on, right? They they prey on people who are who are in need and people who have nowhere else to go because they are, you know, like they, they've lost everything, right? And that's why there's like high radicalization in places where there's like high amounts of war and conflict because they have no other choice, right? Because they're like, oh, it's either I go with these people uh, and radicalize or I basically just sit here and wait to be killed. So, or they, they've lost everything, so they have no, nothing else to lose. They're like, oh, maybe I can get some revenge. So I think it's important to focus on improving, you know, the socioeconomic and sociopolitical environments in a lot of these countries where uh, radicalization is rampant. And obviously it's easier said than done. You can't just go into an active war zone, just be like, peace. But like, th that should be a focus more so than, you know, military and improving people, like the, the militaries of countries and uh, like having a war on terror in like an actual war. Perfect. Thank you. And um, so one, one of the biggest things all of you guys discussed was the role of education in preventing terrorism. And I think education is super important, which is why our next section is all about misconceptions and media. So the objective of this is that since there's a lot of misinformation in the world about Islam, uh, this is to clarify some of those misconceptions from credible sources like you guys who are actually practicing the religion and not media organizations. So uh, I'm going to start off by addressing this question to Muhammad. Uh, what are some common misconceptions that the media has with Islam? A lot of common misconceptions that have to do with Islam are mostly that we're either violent people or we live in like really remote areas uh, in the world, right? When in fact, you know, Islam is a real religion. People across the world practice Islam, right? Like I, th I believe the mo the biggest Muslim majority nation, like the country with the biggest Muslim population, is Indonesia, right? And uh, uh, people, as I said earlier, people are just, uh, people just see Islam as, you know, Saudi Arabia or, you know, places in like the, the Middle East and especially um, the Gulf area. And, you know, that also goes to the point where, you know, not so, not technically Muslim people, but Arab people, we come from pretty, most of us come from pretty wealthy nations. Uh, and, uh, you know, with like to do with Islam being a violent religion this is obviously untrue right the vast majority of muslims there's I, I believe at least i believe there's around one and a half billion muslims in the world and they're like a very small percentage of them are radicalized and violent and you know if you look at any aspect of the quran or any religious texts that come from islam uh you can th this will be shown right there's a there's a verse in the quran that says if you kill somebody it's as if you killed all of humanity right and th there's other parts like how to deal with war right uh when you're at war the prophet prophet muhammad said um you shouldn't even cut down a tree right you shouldn't attack you shouldn't hurt the wildlife you shouldn't hurt the wilderness and when you're at war you should you should only do what you have to do you, you do what's necessary you don't kill people for the sake of killing, you kill people um, for uh, people who are a threat, right? And there's a lot of, a lot of these verses, they, they're taken out of context and they're translated into English. So a lot of their meaning is lost. And a lot of the time people will see, um, you know, that's what, that's what Islam is all about, right? Because they'll just see like this one verse that they see on a Facebook post or something, right? And uh, a lot of the misconceptions about Islam come from the media, you know, how we're portrayed in media, like, uh, up until very recently, all, the only time you'd ever see a Muslim on TV is either on the news because somebody made a terrorist attack or, you know, they, they're on like 
a TV show and they're playing a terrorist, right? There's very few times that you'll see, a, you know, just a regular Muslim living a regular life. They're just a character who is Muslim. That's just being, a, that's not the part of their plot, right? And I think um, one of the only shows that I've seen do this really well is Rami on Hulu, uh, because it really goes into how, you know, like the life of a Muslim American, just his struggles as a Muslim American and not as, you know, a person from Afghanistan that gets radicalized and then bombs a country, right? It's, it's a good change of pace, I guess. So I think that a lot of misconceptions start with the media where like in movies, they have like these hijabi characters that are, that are seemingly oppressed. So they um, show them as hurt and distressed because of that. And that's completely wrong. That's not like what happens in many of the cases. People here, like myself and Alazmi here, have not been oppressed or forced in any way. Um, we follow what we think is right. And that's what majority Muslims do, unless you're being forced by a by a government to do something that, that has to do with your own religion. So a lot of like um, misconceptions start with the media and these movies showing Muslims as like certain people or like having these certain characteristics. And the media needs to stop doing that because it's just spreading more um, misconception again and again and again. And the other thing is that within Islam, there are like different sects, and we've mentioned that before. And because we have different sects, we all have different interpretations of the Quran. And what people tend to do is they pick out something that seems violent or wrong, and they take that and they use it against us. When in different part, when different sects, it means completely different. It means it means peace or it means being defensive um, and not actually hurting people around you. So because of these different interpretations, um, I think that it's it's just become more common. And then these stereotypes that we have some kind of plan at the back of our heads that we're going to do something, that we live here for the purpose that we're going to be harming others. Like it's in human nature that we stereotype but to stereotype to such an extent where you think that your kid is going to be hurt by another kid who wears a hijab, it's it's completely wrong. And we need to stop that by educating, educating elderly as well, because they're the ones who teach their young kids about us. You know, kids would ask, why does this person wear a hijab? And they would be like, oh, because this, this and that, right? They wouldn't be like, oh, they're not oppressed, but it's their choice that they're wearing this hijab for, for the reason that they want to be modest for the reason that they want to promote their own religion. Because as a Muslim hijabi, people see me as Muslim, like without even having to like know my name, they know that I'm Muslim because I wear a headscarf like this. And I've seen people say, oh, she's being oppressed. Oh, she's, she's going through something and she was forced to do this when that's not true. So I think we need to hear stories from actual people instead of hearing stories from the media where it's where it's literally wrong. Like nothing I've seen in the movies where hijabi characters are portrayed is is right. Like there's nothing that has been portrayed right. Yeah, sort of on that element of education, I believe that the West needs to just be more educated on what Islam has provided to the West, where a lot of the time they'll learn about our religion within their schools, they'll learn about the five pillars of Islam, what it means to be a Muslim, but then they don't learn about the contributions they've made to the general well-being of us all, how algebra, the base of most of math that you learn after elementary, was 
developed by a Muslim and how optical surgery was pioneered by Muslims and all these great inventions from the Muslim Middle Ages and how during the dark ages of Europe, they acted as a repository for Greek and ancient Roman texts, where it was only after the reconquista of the Iberian Peninsula, where the European Renaissance did occur because they were exposed to all these texts that Muslims had developed or preserved from previous cultures, where then only from using the building bots of what Muslims did over this really dark period for European history was Europe able to only progress past that. So if we teach people about the different discoveries and innovations and inventions and progresses towards the betterment of mankind that Muslims throughout the world have made and continue to make every day. Like for example, two Muslim immigrants from Turkey made the Pfizer biotech vaccine for COVID. So how they continue to be such a vital role all over the world and how their inventions help us every single day is only where how we will be able to help address the problems people have with Islam. Okay, um, I think that what Shayan said was absolutely beautiful. I think that was just such a perfect way to, um, you know, approach this question that if only the West, you know, or not even the West, just people outside of Islam, outside the faith, and um, really just try to understand and look at the history of how the golden age of Islam has impacted the current um, concurrent inventions. So one of the things, for example, we've talked a lot about education is that the first ever university was actually started by a Muslim woman. And so Islam isn't this barbaric religion and this barbaric community that the media continues to perpetuate. People have to distinguish between extremism and, and Islam. That extremism exists in every single culture and every single faith and every single community. If everyone to, were to characterize Christians as being you know, people who are directly you know related to the KKK for example then that would be a that would be absolutely incorrect that would be absolutely wrong if everyone were con to connect the Jews to people in the IDF um, you know who are who are killing Palestinians that would also be wrong because not every Jewish person is is violent not every Christian is racist and um, not every Muslim is a terrorist and I think that distinction is so important for people to realize that extremism exists in every single community, but that doesn't mean that the overall community is violent. You cannot generalize the entire community or mischaracterize them. And media has a huge part to play in this, having proper representation, distinguishing between Islam and culture, portraying Muslims in a positive light and from a more authentic perspective is something that we should really start looking into. And as Muslim youth, we all have that responsibility to perpetuate the correct image of Islam and to perpetuate Islam as a, as a religion of peace, because that is essentially what it is. Thank you so much, Lasni. And this brings us to the very end of this roundtable discussion. So before we conclude, I'd like to ask each of the panelists today to mention one thing that is really important that was brought up during the roundtable discussion, and one thing they'd like to leave their audience with. So can we start off with Zara? I think the one thing that was brought up by Shayan actually was the contributions Islam has made to these Western countries. And people tend to look over look over the fact what we have actually done for these countries and and it's not just that we we're terrorists or we kill people but rather we provide for them as well um, by giving solutions to many of the world problems that they may have 
And one thing I would leave the audience with is that one person's experience is not everyone's experience, right? Like a Muslim who goes through something is not what every single Muslim might go through. So to say that one Muslim is oppressed doesn't mean that all Muslims are oppressed or one Muslim became a terrorist doesn't mean all Muslims are terrorists. So you need to look at more than one story to understand what Islam is to each and every person. One thing that I'd like people just to remember is just that Islam isn't this religion of barbarism, of cruelty, of violence. It's a very peaceful religion where it's advocating for peace, where most of the writings in the Quran are advocating for peace, where people should be able to live with one another, no matter religious differences, ethnic differences, social differences, anything like that. So Islam is this religion of peace. I just want to remind people to remember this. And if I could leave people with one thing out of today, go to your local mosque and sit down and just talk to an imam. It's something that helps you can learn about Islam and what the community within your own local area has and what they do. Because it's knowing about all the different cultures that do make up of your community is something that is very important. I think like something that we should all really take away from this is that, like Zara said, like not everybody's experience is the same. Everybody has different experiences. I think that it's really important that we should learn from them because I'm like, I'm, I'll be the first to tell you, there are a lot of issues within the Muslim community. And if we could learn from these experiences that people have, I think it would be really fruitful for Muslims and non-Muslims alike. And if there's just one thing that I'd like people to take away from this is that, you know, that, like Shayan said, like, just learn about Islam, right? Because a lot of the time we'll just create our opinions based on like what we see on TV uh, or, or read on the news, but like go and sit down with a Muslim and to the Muslims listening to this, you got to be good representatives of Islam. You know, there's a hadith by the Prophet Muhammad that says, we're all, we're all shepherds and we're all responsible for our own flocks, right? We're all responsible for the people around us. We have to be good leaders and we have to be good representatives of Islam to the people around us. And that's a responsibility that's put upon all of us. And I hope that we can all just take that away from this. Um, absolutely. I think that every single panelist member has said something really amazing and really beautiful. Um, but I think if I were to just look back at the discussion and, and look at what we've learned and some things that I'd like the audience to remember are two main points. One, hold the governments accountable, whether it's the West, whether it's the East, it doesn't matter. If you see governments like France, if you see people, um, you know, governments and just in general in, in countries like Canada, even with the provincial governments of Quebec or in the U.S., um, you know, actively institutionalizing discrimination within their legislation through the secular bill, speak out against it, actively stand against Islamophobia and discrimination because your voice does matter and your voice will make a difference. And secondly, education and awareness. And this is something that everyone has already talked about it. So I will be very brief, but don't learn about Islam from people like Ben Shapiro or Tommy Lahren who use their platform to perpetuate this harmful rhetoric that is, you know, that's purposefully used to mischaracterize the Muslim community um, because they use fear mongering tactics and they use scapegoating. So don't do that. Don't learn. Don't get your knowledge from people like them. 
talk to Muslims, as Shayan mentioned, as everyone everyone mentioned here, to talk to Muslims, uh, go to your local mosque, um, talk to Muslim scholars, and engage in interfaith discussions. Um, and as we say here at TWR, like speak out, you you can be that change that you you want to see. So everyone has that responsibility. Everyone can do something, and even the smallest change, even the smallest you know gesture, can mean a big thing. Perfect. Thank you, Lazni. And thank you, everyone, for coming out today to talk about this. Um, we had just an amazing discussion, talked about so many different things. And I thank you for taking the time out of your day to help educate our audience. And to the audience members, I really hope you gain something from this discussion. Um, and I hope you learn something new and take the advice of our panelists in the future. And hopefully you can get to a much more inclusive place in the world. So once again, thank you. And we really hope to see you at our next roundtable discussion.